Well, good morning. It's great to welcome you to this Resurrection Sunday. Now, this is also, we've designated the Sunday a family worship Sunday. It's one of the reasons we're a little bit full in, full in here, because we usually have uh, a thing called uh, Kid Zone, and then our middle and high school youth group meet uh, during this hour as well. Uh, in fact, I'm just kind of curious, how many of you are normally in Kid Zone or, or, or youth group? Would you... Okay, uh, would you just stand up? I just want to know who you are. I want to know who I'm talking to this morning. Stand up. If you're normally in kids' zone or middle or high school, you, yeah, there's usually about 80 of them. So, yeah, you just... Okay, well, thank you for joining us today. I appreciate it very much. Despite the challenges in the Middle East, tours to Israel have always been the rage. I mean, that's even what the first crusades were about. In 1095, Pope Urban II called for Christian soldiers to go rescue the Holy Land from those dreaded Turks, and so uh, Christians could once again safely observe their pilgrimages. Of course, it didn't hurt that he promised them immediate passage to heaven should they die in the Crusades. You see, the Holy Land, Israel, um, is the birthplace of Christianity, the world's largest religion. Think of it, to to go to Bethlehem and see the place of Jesus' birth. You can even visit the the Church of the Nativity, as I understand, built on the actual site of the manger. Most any taxi driver in Bethlehem will take you to the fields where shepherds were watching over their flocks by night. Close your eyes and you can hear the heavenly chorus of angels. You can make your way to Nazareth, and yes, yet another church is built on the site of the Annunciation, that is Mary's home, uh, where Gabriel appeared to tell her that she would bear the very Son of God. Nazareth, Nazareth, where uh, as a son with his earthly father, Jesus learned the carpenter trade. You can see the town where he ran the streets with his little brothers and sisters to include uh, James and Jude of biblical fame. You, you can go to the Jordan River, where John the Baptist was baptizing people for repentance, preparing the way for the Messiah. There, Jesus was baptized as an example for those who would become his followers. You can go to the Sea of Galilee and visit the areas where Jesus spent most of his, his ministry, calming the, the storm on that particular sea, walking on that sea, teaching, feeding, healing the multitudes. From that very area, he called most of his disciples, four of whom were fishermen, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. You can visit Capernaum, his base of operations, and the purported actual site of Peter's house. One of my personal favorites is the Church of the Beatitudes, erected on the northwest slopes of of the sea, where it is said that Jesus preached his famous sermon on the mount. But no tour would be complete without a trip to Jerusalem. There you can visit the upper room where Jesus and his disciples observed the last Passover, which became the first Lord's Supper. You can visit the Garden of Gethsemane, which means olive press, and there quietly walk among olive trees, some said to actually date back to the time of Christ. You you can make your way uh, down the Via Dolorosa, uh, the the, the path that Jesus traveled from Pilate's Judgment Hall uh, to the site of uh, of the crucifixion. Oh, There is some debate about that one. The the Via Dolorosa will take you to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, 
uh, which construction began in the fourth century when Empress Helena, that's Emperor Constantine's mother, identified the site. I won't go into the story. It's very interesting reading. Google it. You'll find it interesting. You see, the church is supposedly built on the site of the crucifixion and burial of Jesus. Of course, another site became popular in the 19th century with that raging debate. Gordon's Calvary or Golgotha, the place of the skull, and then also the garden tomb. Now, now why this raging debate? Well, you see, here's the problem. We don't actually know where Jesus was crucified and buried. We know that it was outside the city walls, according to Hebrews, which probably eliminates the Church of the Holy Sepulcher. Gordon's Calvary is a good guess, since the, the hill looks like a skull. And, and Calvaria is Latin for skull or skull cap. And the garden tomb? is only a short distance away and seems to meet all of the requirements of the biblical record. But we don't know for sure. Why? Because there's no body there. You see, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the central tenet of the Christian faith. Yes, Jesus did all of those things in the Holy Land, in Israel, and it is a great place to, to, to visit. But, but visit the tomb, even if you were able to pinpoint it, and you will find it somewhat anticlimactic. It's empty. This is the difference between Christianity and the other world religions of our day. For example, I could take you to the three most holy sites of Islam. The, the Kaaba in, in Mecca, Muhammad's house in Medina, and the Dome of the Rock in, in Jerusalem. But, but, but at Muhammad's house in Medina, I can also uh, take you to his tomb underneath the famous green dome where he has been buried since 632 AD when he died. You see, he's still there. It's called the blessed tomb. I, I can take you further east to China, the land of Buddhism, founded by Siddhartha Gautama in the 6th century BC. Gautama b became the enlightened one. You know him as the fat belly guy. He died in 483 BC at the age of 80. Tradition says he was cremated and his ashes were, ashes were divided among eight princes who followed him. Suffice it to say, he's still dead. I can even refer you to Judaism and its founder Moses. Deuteronomy 34 says that he died at the ripe old age of 120 in the plains of Moab. That's modern day Jordan. Uh, at the top of Mount Nebo. The point is he died and stayed dead. The difference between Christianity and the other world religions is its founder alone was God in the flesh and its founder alone did not stay dead. It is what we as Christians celebrate on Easter Sunday, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, I suppose that we could ask a couple of questions about that resurrection. First, I mean, you know, what's the big deal? If Jesus came as the Son of God to die for the sons of humanity, and He died on, on the cross, how important is it that he, was, that he was raised from the dead? I mean, all of the founders of the other world religions died and, well, stayed dead. If we could visit the grave of Jesus and His body was still there, would it really make that much of a difference? Nod your heads, yes, please. 
Couldn't we just build a shrine and visit like everyone else does? Second question, the one I want to focus on this Easter Sunday morning is, how do we know that he was raised from the dead? Because I would suggest if he was, it changes everything. It changes everything. The Apostle Paul answers those questions for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The church in Corinth was confused about the resurrection. Technically, they weren't denying the resurrection of Jesus. They were okay with that because, you see, at that time, there was no denying it. But they were denying a future resurrection of his followers. The key verse is, uh, to the chapter is found in verse 12. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead that is in the future? Why do you say that? Again, the Corinthians were not denying Christ's resurrection. They were denying their own. So Paul had to deal with this error, and in so doing gives us the resurrection chapter, the greatest exposition of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the promise of our future resurrection, the greatest in the entire Bible. This is the pinnacle of Christian truth. Paul starts the chapter reminding them what he had preached and what they had believed. He, he shares with them the gospel of, of Christ. Look at it with me. 1 Corinthians 15. Let's look at the first 11 verses. Now I make known to you, brothers, the gospel which I preached to you, which also, also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. How do we know? That he w and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve, and that, he appeared, uh, and that He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Here's the question of the morning. If the resurrection is essential to Christianity, and I'm suggesting that it is, how do we know that it is true? The outline of the text of these verses go simply like this. We're going to look at this is what you believed. This is the gospel. Let me make that clear. And then this is proof of its truthfulness. Now, verses 1 and 2 serve as a bit, actually, just as a bit of an introduction. He's going to define the gospel, but before he does, he says several things about it. Notice he says three things, actually. The gospel is that which you received, it is that in which you stand, and it is, it is by which you are saved. First, we see the Corinthians received or believed the gospel. That is, when Paul came preaching the good news, 
That, that's what the word gospel means, by the way. Good news, the good news about Jesus. When he came preaching it, they received it. That is, verse 11, they believed it. Now, those words, to believe, carry great significance in the New Testament. It is not just a matter of hearing and believing a set of facts. We talked about this last week. It is, it is much more than that. It is receiving, it is believing the facts for yourself. It is believing the truths about Jesus are true for, for you personally, committing your life to those truths. But it's even more than that. It's not just committing your life to a set of ideals. It's not just committing your life to a set of historical facts. It is committing your life to a person who died for you and did not stay dead. Jesus said it, or John, uh, John said it this way in, in John chapter 1, but as many as received, notice him. To them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. And to believe in his name is to believe everything about, that, that everything about him is true and to commit your life to that truth. Do you see? They received him. They believed in him such that the next verse says that they were born again and become children of God. And I know that word born again has kind of fallen out of, out of vogue these days, and it's like a good old Southern term or something. It is a biblical term, and it speaks to the truth that we were born physically the first time, but we were born dead, and we need to be born again spiritually the second time when we believe. So the Corinthians are done. I understand that's probably what most of you have done, but maybe not all. Again, it is not just believing facts about Jesus. It is trusting your life to those facts and allowing Jesus to come into your life, listen, and take over. Maybe you've heard all about the gospel. You're not convinced Christianity is just another world religion to you. That's fine. I'm actually glad that you're here. But here's what I would suggest. Examine the claims of Christ and you will find him different than the rest. You will find him, as I suggested earlier, alive. That's what the good news is. That's why we sing about it. So, what had this receiving or this believing the gospel accomplished in the lives of the Corinthians? Notice, second, the gospel is that which, by which they stand. It's the ground upon which they stand, in fact, build their lives. Remember Jesus one time talking about not building your life on, on sand. That'll, that's the stuff of this earth that'll just, that'll just wash away. Build your life on the rock, solid truth of the gospel. You stand in it. It makes them what they are. It gives them life in the present. Trusting Christ gives glorious, purpose-filled life right now. It isn't just something future. It is right now. Here's a simple question I want you to ask, uh, answer. Are you aimless, purposeless, struggling with meaning in life, trying to figure out what in the world you're going to do with your life that makes a difference? I want to say to you that meaning is found in Jesus Christ. Not only that, third, the gospel is that by which they were saved. That is, saved from their sin and the punishment of their sin. A lot of times people want to talk to, about Jesus today, making a, a wonderful life for you, and they leave out the sin part. They are, you are saved from your sin. We need to be saved from a rebellion against God. 
Now notice the past, present, and future aspect of this gospel. It is that which you received. It is that which in now you stand. And by that, it is that which in the future you will be saved. See, the gospel is all of life, past, present, and future to us. Again, that word saved, I know, is a bit out of vogue. Again, a biblical term. It is what happens, Paul says, if you believe, hold fast the word preach. This is, that is the good news of the gospel. Brings us to our second point, the definition of the gospel. Okay, all right, all right, all right. What do I believe? Verses 3 and 4. These are some of the most important verses in the Bible. Now, all the Bible is God's word. It's all important, but these are some of the most important. Paul even says so. And when he summarizes the content of the gospel, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scripture. Now, the the New Testament was written in Greek, and the the Greek verb tenses are incredibly important. He he died and was buried, or in it, tense is called the aorist tense, which speaks of a, a point in time past. It's a past action. Uh, so at a point in time past, Jesus died. At a point in time past, Jesus was buried. But when Paul says he was raised on the third day, he switches from the aorist tense to the perfect tense, which speaks of something that happened in the past, but has ongoing effect. He was raised, he means, and he was, he's still raised. He is still alive, and that fact has ongoing effect in my life today, which is the point that he will make in the rest of the chapter. Because Jesus has been raised, the effect is that we too will one day be raised. This is the hope of the Christian faith. This is why, by the way, Christian funerals are different. I'm sure that most of you have been to a a number of funerals in your life, and you will find that that, that Christian funerals are a bit different than non-Christian funerals. Non-Christian funerals are quite sad events, hopeless now, Christian funerals can be a little bit sad too, but we, are not, we do not grieve as others who have no hope. We recognize something greater awaits. Now notice the gospel very clearly includes the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, which means I'm talking to believers this morning to share a gospel that says Jesus died for your sins is only half the story. Be sure to share the rest of the story. That is, if you can, I mean, you can't visit his tomb today, wherever it is, and he's not there because he's risen from the dead. Tana and I, my wife and I, were privileged to visit what is purported to be, I think it might be, uh, his actual empty tomb. And I can verify, no one's there. So you go into this hole in the wall and you look and you go, yep, there it is, nothing there. I took this picture outside the garden tomb. I love this picture. The gospel. Notice first, Christ died for our sins. First, Peter 2 says it this way. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. He bore every sin, every sin we've ever committed. I'm sure you can think of a few. Every one of them. And for you believers struggling, I love to ask this question. When Christ died 2,000 years ago, which sins did he die for? All of them. 
You may be here this morning and say, well, I'm not, I'm not, th- I'm not that bad. Yes, actually, you are. Or you say, I, I, I'm too bad. No, actually, no one is beyond the reach of God's grace. Galatians 1 says it this way, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us. This is good news. Further, we, see the, uh, we also see the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, uh, and Luke, and John, all record the, the crucifixion and burial for us. We know that he was buried in, in a new tomb, one cut out of the rock in a garden owned by a rich man, a guy by the name of Joseph of Arimathea. Stone was rolled in front and a Roman guard was posted because they remembered that Jesus said he would rise again after three days. They couldn't have someone come and steal the body. Now, could they? So they made sure no one did, contrary to what you've heard. Three days later, according to the Scripture and the promise of Jesus himself, he did rise from the dead on the first day of the week, on that first Easter Sunday morning. Now, what does Paul mean when he says he was crucified and risen according to the Scripture? Remember, the New Testament was being written at this particular time, which means Paul was referring back to the Old Testament, which is why after the resurrection, Luke tells us that the two disciples, quite dismayed over Jesus' death, they are on their way to a town called Emmaus, and Jesus appears to them and says, was it not necessary? What's wrong with you guys? Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scripture. That is all the Old Testament. This was all prophesied. Death, burial, and resurrection, all prophesied. Further, uh, it's why Paul, as he was standing before King Agrippa in Acts chapter 26, could say, I stand this day testifying to both small and great, stating nothing but what the prophets and Moses, that's the Old Testament, uh, said was going to take place, that Christ would suffer and that by reason of his resurrection from the dead, he would be the first to proclaim light to both Jews and Gentiles. Here's the point. This was foreseen. This was the plan of God from the, before the foundation of the world. The cross didn't take God by surprise. It was his plan. And so was the resurrection. Which Old Testament prophets? Well, let me give you a couple. Isaiah chapter 53 says, but he was pierced through for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. By his scourging, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all, all of us to fall on Jesus. It's like reading a newspaper account. I'm sorry, kids, newspaper. That's something we used. Never mind. Um, by the way, um, Isaiah 53 also refers to his burial. Again, like reading a website. His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death, which, of course, speaks of him dying between two thieves, yet being buried in the tomb of a rich man named Joseph. What about his resurrection? Where do we find that in the Old Testament? number of places. Let's just stay in Isaiah 53. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, Jesus, he will see his offspring. That's believers. He will prolong Jesus' days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Even though he dies, even though he's crushed, he will be raised. His days prolonged. Peter, 
in the first message of the Christian church on the day of Pentecost, some 50 days after the events that we are observing this weekend, the, 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 the Passover and the resurrection, 50 days later, he quotes an Old Testament psalm which speaks of the resurrection. It's kind of a long passage, but it, but it all goes together. Follow along with me. This man, Jesus, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. In other words, again, the cross did not take God by surprise. It was his plan. You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless and, uh, men and put him to death, but God raised him up. B again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held by his power. We just sing about that. Death could not hold him. For David, who lived a thousand years before Jesus, says of him, that's Jesus, I saw the Lord always in my presence for he is at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart will, was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh will also will live in hope, because you will not abandon my soul, David says, my soul to Hades, that's the place of the dead, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You, you have made known to me the, the ways of life. You will uh, make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, he says, I can confidently say to you regarding this patriarch who's speaking of himself, he thought... His, he both died and was buried in his tomb was with us to this day. And I can verify, I've seen it. David's dead, lying in a tomb in Israel. And so, because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, that's 2 Samuel chapter 7, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ that he was neither abandoned to Hades. Jesus didn't go to the place of the dead, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again to which we are all witnesses. <laughs> Notice that, we are all witnesses, leads us to our third point. And that second question that I really want to answer, how do we know Jesus was raised from the dead? I mean, if this is the, the, if this is the crux of the Christian faith, we ought to know it, right? Look at the witnesses. Look at all of them. That's what Paul talks about in verses 5 to 11 of our text. He starts with Cephas. That's Peter, by the way. We don't know when Jesus appeared to Peter. Sometime after Mary Magdalene in the garden uh, on the first Easter Sunday morning. Well, why did Jesus give Peter a personal appearance? Don't know for sure, but likely because Peter had denied him. Remember that? Not once, but three times. The very night he was betrayed, denied even knowing him but then repented bitterly. It was an act of grace on the part of Jesus. It's not that Peter deserved to see Jesus most, listen, but perhaps because he needed to see him most. Jesus is like that. He also appeared to the 12. That is the 12 minus Judas, gone out and hung himself. He appeared to them in the upper room, the one where I showed you the picture of, or one like it, while they were cowering behind locked doors. He actually did that twice, once without Thomas, once with. Remember that story? He later appeared to them in Galilee. He appeared to more than 500 at one time. Do you know that there are historical events that you accept as true with fewer witnesses than this? We don't know when and where that was, but 500 at one time. In a Jewish court of law, two or three witnesses were all that was needed. What do you do with 500 that was one amazing mass hallucination, or Jesus was raised from the dead. Paul is building an airtight case. Jesus was dead, but is risen. 
now alive. There could be no disputing it. In fact, he says, many of them, of those 500 are still alive today. You can go ask them. Again, the Corinthians were not denying the resurrection. You couldn't. It's only 21st century smart people, they think, who deny it. You can't deny it. Then he appeared to James. <laughs> this is a great one. Likely the half-brother of Jesus. You know, ran around in the streets of Nazareth with, with, with Jesus. How would that have, what the, would that have been like growing up with a perfect older brother? I mean, my brother did, but... <laughs> Kidding. This is significant. The Gospels reveal the brothers of Jesus did not believe in him during his ministry. In fact, they thought he was a lunatic. They thought him mad. They thought him crazy. They made fun of him in John chapter 7. One time they sought to, 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 to perform an, uh, an intervention. They wanted to get him and bring him home, I suppose, because of the embarrassment he was bringing to the family. But here we see Jesus graciously, lovingly appearing to one of his own flesh and blood brothers who does, by the way, become a believer and the pastor of the first church in Jerusalem. I think he probably knew who Jesus was. He grew up with him. It's not all. Not only Peter, not only James, not only 500, but last, also Paul, who had been the chief persecutor of the Christian church. Do not miss that. And Jesus appeared to Paul, making him an apostle, a preacher of the gospel. Look what Paul says about himself. I was the last one, last apostle, as one untimely born. The word for untimely born, interesting word. It speaks of an abortion, a miscarriage, or a premature birth. The idea, I was born at the wrong time, after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And notice the, the, the emptiness into which he was born. It was, it was a hopeless life. If Jesus had not appeared to me, there would be no life. There would have been no hope for me. I was untimely born. But his appearance to me made me an apostle, the, the least of the apostles, but an apostle nonetheless. I'm not even fit to be called an apostle since I persecuted the church so severely. In, in fact, in 1 Timothy, Paul refers to himself as the worst of sinners. I want you to hear that the worst of sinners. Bearing papers from the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling body, he went throughout Israel, even to other countries, seeking believers in Jesus to arrest them, to destroy this new faith. But it was while he was on the road to Damascus that Jesus appeared to him and called him to a life of preaching this good news he once sought to destroy. And therefore, Paul says, I am what I am by the grace of God. Now listen very carefully. So are you. Every one of us, if by his loving grace extended through the gospel, we did not believe we too would be living a hopeless, helpless, ultimately meaningless life. Paul was acutely aware that he did not deserve the gospel that, it was, that he was what he was only by God's grace. That's what grace means. It is undeserved attention from God. That he was the least of the, he understood that he was the least of the apostles, the worst of sinners. But that is the good news of the gospel. Jesus came to save sinners. 
even the worst of them. Even this morning, if you think yourself unworthy of his love, his grace, his attention, you are. (laughs) But it is precisely in that position that he will save you. Oh, and by the way, if you think yourself pretty good, that you can make it to heaven, uh, to God without Jesus, that's not true either. You see, Paul in Philippians chapter 3 says that by Jewish standards, he was a pretty good guy. He kept the law, that is all of the, uh, the, the rules of Judaism perfectly, but he was still a sinner. And he needed G- in need of a Savior. He needed Jesus just like every one of us. Listen very carefully. No matter how good you are, you are not good enough. You are still a sinner. And no matter, no matter how bad you are, you are not bad enough. God's grace through Christ is for every one of you. And so I hope that is true of you this morning. That you have believed the gospel and that you have received Jesus as your Savior, having turned from sin and death to righteousness and life, life found only in the resurrected Savior named Jesus. And if you have not, if you have not, being saved is simply a matter of having faith in the gospel, the good news about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. What better day to receive the gospel, to believe the gospel, than the day that we as Christians celebrate his resurrection. Let's stand for prayer. And so, Father, my prayer is for every person in this room. Uh, I know that most of us here know Jesus. I also know that not all of us do. And so my prayer is that by simple faith in Jesus Christ, people would receive you, believe in you, confess their sin, and become believers with us, trusting in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.